Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Thurston Moore, a fearless guitar player who mixed the thundering dissonance of punk rock with the experimental spirit of avant-garde to pull an entirely new sound from the instrument. With Sonic Youth, this sound epitomized the uncompromising ideals of alternative rock, inspired bands like Nirvana, and cemented his legacy as an American music icon. But this isn't about Thurston Moore. This is about Kim Gordon, a blonde Southern California girl with an icy stare who fled family trouble on the West Coast to become a symbol of New York cool as a founding member of Sonic Youth, visual artist and fashion designer. Her style and artistic instincts endeared the band to diehard fans even as they exploded in popularity in the early 90s. She was also married to Thurston Moore. For 27 years, their romantic partnership was almost as revered as their creative one. To fans, they were a true-life rock-and-roll fairy tale where no one ever sells out and love lasts forever. That image was shattered in 2011 when they abruptly announced their separation. This story is about a girl... That famous California sunset stretched out before her. Kim Gordon was back home. The turn signal on her VW bus clicked back and forth while she waited for an opening to merge into the heavy rush hour traffic, and though she wasn't exactly happy to be back, she had to admit that golden hour in Culver City was hard to beat. 
It was 1978, and everything in the art world was happening on the other side of the country in New York City. Kim, like just about every art school graduate in LA, was dying to be there. In fact, Kim had already tasted the Big Apple, if only briefly. Six months ago, she boarded a bus east with big plans and very little cash. She still remembered the tingling feeling in the pit of her stomach when the bus crossed the West Side Highway and took her into Manhattan for the first time. It was back in an era where New York still wore its rough edges like a badge of honor and the city had an art scene to match. Gritty and raw. For a lifelong Californian like Kim, it felt so real. Unfortunately, it was real expensive. She only lasted a few months before running out of cash and boarding a bus back to California. She'd arrived just a week prior and was still licking her wounds while she crashed with friends and schemed on saving enough money to go back again, this time for good. A horn blared behind her. She missed a brief opening to turn, and now cars were swarming by once again. She tried to focus, but her mind was a mess thanks to a phone call she received earlier that day. That morning, her older brother Keller finally graduated from his master's program at Berkeley. He had stopped and started so many times over the past few years that there was no real ceremony. He just needed to pick up his diploma. When the phone rang a few hours later, Kim barely noticed. Hardly anyone even knew where to find her, so she was surprised when her friend called her to the phone. Kim's mom was on the other line, and she could tell by her panicked breathing that the news was bad. It was Keller. He was in jail. While in the school cafeteria, he'd suffered what the police were calling a psychotic break. After picking up his diploma, he went to eat lunch and suddenly started experiencing vivid, Shakespeare-themed hallucinations. He lunged at a group of girls he thought were maidens, and the police ended up tackling and handcuffing him. Now they were saying he was going to be in the psych ward for a mandatory 48-hour stay. Both Kim and her mom were rattled, but not entirely shocked by the news. Keller was always a little unusual growing up, but especially since he first dropped acid a few years ago. He started isolating from family and friends, and lately he seemed to be sliding further and further away from reality. Growing up, Keller was the family's golden child. Creative and hyper-literate, he published his own underground zine, and wrote a sociological study of his junior high's various cliques. He was smart, but also rebellious and stubborn, quick to argue a point, stretch a rule, or in general torment their parents, especially as a teenager. He tormented Kim, too. She worshipped him growing up, but she always had to keep up her defense or else she could easily become the target of his withering critique. If her favorite movie was Sleeping Beauty, she was a dumb kid. If she liked the monkeys, she was a conformist. If she cried when he yelled at her, she was too sensitive. If she told him off, she was a bitch. So Kim learned to hide her emotions, to stay cool when provoked. She harnessed that icy thousand-yard stare that would become her trademark. She practiced it on her brother until his rants blended into the background. She practiced it on her parents until they hardly even noticed she was there. She practiced it until it was so natural, it almost became a part of her. 
While she learned to keep her emotions bottled up at home, she always found that in art class, they could take control. Her anger, frustration, exhilaration, usually so hard to access, suddenly poured out of her when she stood at the easel or the pottery wheel. Or the way her modern dance performances felt like jumping off a cliff and surviving. It was addictive. That's what she loved about New York. The fearlessness with which artists threw themselves into their work. The way they pushed into unknown territory. She wasn't quite sure what to call it, but she knew she wanted to see more. Her plan was to grab a quick waitressing job, live cheap, and head back there in three months. Now, with the news about Keller, she didn't know what to do. It was too much to think about. The horns behind her blared again, snapping her attention back to the road. She slid her foot off the brake and crept forward. The horns kept blaring. She looked left just in time to see a sedan bounce off a parked car and hop the curb. It barreled down the sidewalk straight at her, snapping a parking meter and scraping a line of cars, picking up speed as it went. All she could do was brace for impact. The sedan smashed into the van's thin frame and it crumpled on impact. It spun sideways and slammed into a retaining wall where it came to a stop. Kim was dazed, but she walked away without serious injury. Just a few stitches in a sore back. Over the next few months, the wreck faded from memory. Her brother's incident at Berkeley, however, left a much more permanent mark. After 48 hours, he was released and went back to live in his trailer in Malibu. At first, it seemed like he was doing well, but then he quit taking his pills and had another incident a few days later. He was held for another 48-hour observation and released again, part of the horrific cycle that her family would get to know all too well over the next year as they came to grips with Keller's schizophrenia. Eventually, Kim grew to dread the sound of the phone. She knew at any moment the calm could be shattered by a call about Keller's latest incident. The stress had made it hard to save money, but New York was still beckoning. She knew a fresh start would do her good. She also knew with her limited funds she'd probably be back in L.A. in six months again, but she had to try. While she was planning her return, a letter arrived in the mail. It was about her car wreck the previous year. The insurance company had reached a settlement with the driver. They were sending her a check. She stopped reading. It was all she needed to read to know she was finally headed back to New York, this time for good. Snow swirled between buildings in the cold December air. Inside the rickety loft, Kim was shivering. She'd been in town a month and was still acclimating to the city's freezing temperatures, she wasn't complaining, though. She had already scored a sublet in the corner of this very loft from an artist friend, and interesting people were always popping by. Tonight's party was no exception, but Kim was itching to head to Mud Club for a fashion show, concert, and art installation that she was pretty sure would blow her mind. Unfortunately, for the last hour, she had been trapped in a corner chatting with a sad-eyed party girl with mascara-streaked tears running down her face. 
she was blubbering over some guy, and even though Kim was ready to leave, she offered her a shoulder to cry on. The relationship didn't seem that serious, but from what Kim could gather, the guy came on strong with the I love yous and tokens of affection, like the scuffed up acoustic guitar the girl carried with her. Now, after a few glasses of wine and some you're better off without him solidarity from Kim, the girl was on the upswing. As for the guitar, she told Kim to keep it. Kim was musical-ish, right? The idea was preposterous to Kim. Sure, she loved listening to music, but she didn't know the first thing about playing it. She picked up the guitar and noticed the name Drifter scrolled across the headstock. She gave it a tentative strum. As the open strings rang out, it wasn't quite music. But then again, what was? It was definitely an interesting noise, a new medium to pursue, perhaps. Fresh into her New York adventure, Kim was open to anything. By the time she hit New York in late 1979, Kim was almost 27. Her appetite for the art scene that she fantasized about for so long was ravenous. She took in the collages of Barbara Kruger, their feminist assertions spelled out boldly in black and white and red. She watched Richard Prince funnel critiques of mass culture through symbols like the Marlboro Man. She was compelled by the dissonance in their work, the way they could curdle the syrupy sweetness of Madison Avenue into something altogether more menacing and thought-provoking. Into art. At night, she saw the same trends emerging from the experimental no-wave bands that played the tiny art spaces dotting the city. Kim saw bands like theoretical girls deconstruct rock standards by stripping out their hooks and sandblasting them with distorted guitar, abrasive keys, and thundering rhythms, or foregoing traditional song arrangements entirely. The performances were wild and freeing. In a music scene that still expected women to be observers, the interplay of the mostly male musicians on stage fascinated Kim. The way they could access their emotions so freely and intimately on the stage while they struggled to do the same off of it. It was something she could relate to. When a friend asked her to contribute to an art magazine, she delved into the topic in the article, Trash, Drugs, and Male Bonding. By now, Kim had been playing her scuffed up acoustic guitar at home, and she knew she couldn't be happy just as an observer. She needed to step on stage to feel that exhilaration for herself, to jump off the cliff and survive. Kim knew that with her own skittishness, she needed a confidant and collaborator, someone with the confidence to mask her own inner doubts. She played with a handful of all-female groups, but nothing jailed. It was one of these bandmates that first introduced her to Thurston Moore when they saw his band play. The band wasn't all that special, but something about the guitar player attracted almost everyone in the room, Kim included. He was skinny and tall, 6'6", with hair flopping down over his eyes. The elbows were worn out of his threadbare plaid shirt, and in his backwards hat he looked even younger than his age, which was five years younger than her. After the show, they chatted, and she was disarmed by his goofy sense of humor and laid-back yet supremely confident personality. 
It seemed a far cry from the needy, obsessive men she usually dated. Older men. Far too much like her brother. He asked her out the following week. They had dinner at a hole-in-the-wall cafe, and this being Kim, they caught an improv band at a local art space. He told her he moved to the city from Connecticut in 77, bragging to friends he would start a band with Sid Vicious. While that didn't work out, he was definitely starting to make a name for himself as a guitar player with the sound all his own. Thurston came back to her tiny apartment that night. Kim was already feeling the strength of their connection when they sat down on her bed. Thurston glanced over at the beat-up acoustic guitar hanging on the wall. Whoa, he said. I know that guitar. Kim shook her head. Impossible. No, he stated. I know that guitar. Drifter, right? Hell, I've played that guitar. They traced their timelines and it turned out Thurston had crossed paths with the scuffed up acoustic guitar a few months before Kim. It seemed to seal the connection between them. Two months later, he moved in. Kim and Thurston started making music together, but it wasn't until they landed on the name Sonic Youth that a vision started emerging. They debuted their new project at Noise Fest, a nine-day extravaganza curated by Thurston and Kim to unify the bands forming under the Noise Rock umbrella. In a recording of the performance, you can hear Kim, green as she is, jump fearlessly into the performance, adding vocal lines and other textural elements. Over the next year, Thurston helped Kim hone her chops while Kim immersed him in the downtown art scene, opening his eyes even further to the techniques and possibilities of avant-garde. With her encouragement, he started experimenting radically with new tricks, like stuffing drumsticks under his strings and attacking them with screwdrivers and power drills to summon explosive blasts of noise. Like Kim's favorite visual artists, they were creating a sound that curdled the sweetness of pop music into something darker, heavier, and more thought-provoking into art. By 1984, Kim and Thurston were married and, along with guitarist Lee Ronaldo and drummer Steve Shelley, Sonic Youth released a string of albums that, while they sold next to nothing, collected rave reviews from critics and fellow musicians. Despite opportunities to reach a larger audience, they refused to tame their sound scouring their catchiest songs with layers of paint-peeling distortion, or balancing them out with Kim's impressionist sound collages, gaining the loyalty of diehard fans. As their audience began to grow up and get married themselves, it was easy to see Kim and Thurston's devoted partnership as a symbol for the artistic integrity the fans revered in the band. Such rare commodities in the hedonistic world of rock and roll even when Sonic Youth jumped to a major label for their breakthrough album Goo in 1990, it seemed more like pop culture had bent to their will than the other way around. They recruited public enemies Chuck D to appear on Kim's feminist anthem Cool Thing, and the song surprised everyone by becoming a top 10 hit on Billboard's alternative chart. They were red hot in the summer of 1991 when they handpicked up-and-coming acts Dinosaur Jr. and Nirvana to support them on a European festival tour. 
watching filmmaker Dave Markey's footage of the tour, it's incredible to see a young Dave Grohl clowning around or Kurt Cobain launching himself into a drum kit in front of bewildered fans just weeks before the band would rocket to fame. It's also striking to see the contrast between Kim and Thurston. Thurston mugs for the camera and spouts a constant stream of commentary. He tries hard to come across as irreverent and profound, but in hindsight, it looks painfully forced. Kim, on the other hand, isn't trying at all. She barely says a word, exhibiting almost Keith Richards' level of anti-star charisma behind black sunglasses. As quiet as she is between shows, on stage she explodes like a bomb, sexy and intimidating, in a striped mini-dress that became her calling card. The person she connected to most on the tour was the frail, shy lead singer of Nirvana. Although Kurt was 14 years younger than her, she recognized in him the same sensitivity, the same weariness of the world that she felt. She also recognized the recklessness with which he would throw himself into his music like he was jumping off a cliff. Kim trusted herself to survive, but she wasn't sure if she could say the same for Kurt. Ten days after they returned from Europe, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit single came out. Nirvana exploded into the mainstream, but Sonic Youth continued to smolder. By now, Kim had become a veteran of the scene and, thanks to songs like Cool Thing, was an inspiration for the growing Riot Girl movement. She teamed up with Spike Jones to direct a video for the breeder song Cannonball, and Kurt's new girlfriend, Courtney Love, pleaded with her to produce the debut album for her new band, Hole. Kim eventually agreed, although Courtney's outsized personality made Kim more than a little worried for Kurt. In 1994, Sonic Youth announced what would be their most successful album yet. Experimental Jet Set, Trash, and No Star. But for this album, there would be no tour. The reason? It wasn't some rock star power move, but something more domestic. Kim and Thurston were having a baby. Despite the limited concert schedule, Kim's boundless creativity kept her busy during pregnancy. She dove into side projects and shot music videos. With her sleek, minimalist look splashed across fashion magazines and music videos, she partnered with a friend to launch X-Girl, one of the first female-focused streetwear lines. That's why she was at her friend's apartment that day in April, testing t-shirt samples for X-Girl when the phone rang. She was so focused on the work at hand that she barely noticed the sound, but when her friend handed her the phone, it was Thurston on the other line. She could tell by his breathing that the news was bad. It's Kurt, he told her. Kurt Cobain was dead. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, Airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Kim.
Kim hadn't thought about Thurston in a while. Sometimes it amazed her. Weeks would go by without him crossing her mind until suddenly the phone would ring. His attorney had questions about the house in Northampton or who owned which piece of vintage music gear, and the past three years would roll by in an instant. Or worse, she'd be on a date only to hear a Sonic Youth song playing in the background at the bar. A song he used to sing for her, or sometimes one she sang for him. That was a real mood killer. Unlike Thurston, she still thought about Kurt all the time. Maybe it was the intensity of their short-lived connection, or the way her daughter's birth and his death seemed forever linked in her mind as the highs and lows of 1994. She and Kurt had so much in common, but despite all the trauma and despair of the past few years, Kim knew she didn't have his capacity for self-annihilation. Maybe parenthood had given her that restraint, even if it couldn't offer the same to him. Maybe it was for her daughter that she survived when Thurston destroyed their marriage and broke her heart. Looking back, she realized the fracture in their relationship probably started when they left New York City. Their daughter was a teenager, and they hoped for a slightly more normal family life in the funky, artistic community of Northampton, Massachusetts. Thurston immersed himself in book and film work, and Kim was busy with projects of her own. They had always been independent people, but with constant travel back and forth to New York, three and a half hours to the south, a kind of distance opened up between them. At the time, Sonic Youth seemed primed for another decade of success. They survived the alternative rock popularity boom with their pride intact, retreating from the mainstream back to a more comfortable position on the fringes. They moved from a major label back to a well-respected indie and seemed to be settling into a stately late-career renaissance. Their latest album, The Eternal, received customary rave reviews, and they had a busy tour schedule on the books for 2011. That all changed one morning when Kim picked up Thurston's phone to check the time. On his home screen, there were three incriminating text messages between him and another woman. Kim was shocked and heartbroken. She knew something was wrong lately. He seemed guarded and more preoccupied than usual. But she never expected a betrayal like this. Some midlife crisis affair with a woman half his age? The stunning banality of it all hurt the most. How utterly contemptibly predictable. They tried to reconcile for almost a year to no avail. Thurston had already moved on, even if he wouldn't admit it. Every time he was caught, he would admit guilt, beg for forgiveness, and promise he was ready to come back to her and their family. Things would settle down for a while, and then she would catch him again. A horrible cycle of stress and grief that reminded her of her family's experience with her brother. She knew she couldn't go through it again, and she definitely knew she didn't want to put her daughter through it, but the decision was unbearably difficult. She remembered when she came to the horrible realization that no matter what he said, Thurston could not or would not be true, and that it would fall on her to end it. 
Their split felt like jumping off a cliff, but instead of the joy of exhilaration she felt when performing, now she only felt dread. The dread of starting over. The dread of standing on her own after so many years with a confidant, a partner, someone to mask her inner doubts. The end of Sonic Youth, and all of it playing out in public. She jumped off that cliff, kicking Thurston out of their Northampton house, and the longer she survived without him, the more those inner doubts were starting to disappear for good. She packed up her daughter for her freshman year of college and suddenly found, after years of steady grind with Sonic Youth, she finally had time to contemplate her next move. She took on art commissions, huge works that in the past she would have been too busy to contemplate. She invited a friend, Bill Nace, over to jam and ended up forming the wild improvisational duo Bodyhead. She took in new art and music, sharpening her instincts once again. It had been hard work, but lately she was starting to feel herself again. She was ready to share her voice, her outlook, her art with the world. Not as half of a music power couple, or as a piece of Sonic Youth, or any other band, but for the first time as Kim Gordon. That's how they announced her when she stepped on stage with Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and Pat Smear of Nirvana. Kim had rolled her eyes at the whole affair, Nirvana's induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She knew that this was exactly the type of black-tie, watered-down corporate affair that Kurt would have loathed. She had to give the guys credit, though. At least they had made it interesting by inviting her, Joan Jett, and a couple up-and-coming singers, Lord and St. Vincent, to take Kurt's place. She hoped he would have gotten a smile out of four tough women leading the band in that giant corporate arena. While the ceremony had been a chore to get through, she was much more excited about what was happening now, just hours later. They were jammed into a tiny club in Brooklyn about to perform a surprise set of Nirvana songs for a crowd of 250 diehard fans. Everywhere backstage were familiar faces, some she hadn't seen in years, like Jay Mascus of Dinosaur Jr., still going strong all these years after Sonic Youth brought them out on tour in 1991. As the band wrapped up a song on stage to thunderous applause, Kim thought once more about her brother and Thurston and Kurt. All three she had adored in different ways. All three had leaned on her for support, for guidance, for love. But in the end, none could provide the same for her. It had taken almost 60 years, but she had learned to stand on her own, and she knew she would never look back. People asked her about a Sonic Youth reunion all the time. She told them not to hold their breath. On stage, Dave Grohl pounded the tongs, thundering out the opening to the song Aneurysm, working the crowd into a frenzy. Kim was ready to hit the stage and feel the cleansing power of loud noise and dissonance. To feel the exhilaration of jumping off the cliff and surviving. She strode across the stage in a striped mini dress and dark sunglasses like it was 1991. 
She grabbed the mic and stared out into the crowd, looking equal parts sexy and intimidating. A vision of downtown New York cool. Kim Gordon looked like an icon. It was a wreck that first propelled Kim Gordon from Los Angeles to New York City in 1979. It was sifting through the wreckage of her home life that finally sent her back home nearly 40 years later. After announcing their split, Kim and Thurston spent three grueling years finalizing their divorce and untangling their lives from each other. Eventually, Kim sold the house in Northampton, weighed down with so many painful memories. And rather than return to New York, she surprised even herself by heading home for Florida. The return home ignited her creative fires again. She experimented with new styles of art and music. She wrote a memoir called Girl in a Band in 2015 and carved out a niche as an actor, appearing on shows like Gossip Girl in Portlandia. Despite still refusing to classify herself as a musician, she celebrated 40 years of making music in 2019 by taking the steps she avoided her entire career. She finally released an album under her own name. The music of No Home Record sounds nothing like Sonic Youth, but it sounds 100% like Kim Gordon. In between sound collages and ominous grinding riffs, she reads things like Airbnb listings over beat-heavy production, curdling the sweetness of their lifestyle porn lingo into something darker, into art. On the album, she sounds wise, tough, and vulnerable. She shares some of the most personal songs of her career. For a band that no longer exists, Sonic Youth has stayed extremely busy. They continue to release archived and live recordings to an eager and devoted audience. In 2020, they raised thousands of dollars for COVID relief with a line of merch inspired by their album Sonic Nurse. Almost as soon as the band played their final concert in Sao Paulo, Brazil, there was constant speculation about an eventual reunion. Fans remain hopeful, and various members of the band have stated they are open to it. But Kim has always been adamant about saying she has moved on. Thurston Moore has stayed busy as well. Since the band split, he has put out a few solo records and formed a new band, Chelsea Light Moving, that sounds a lot like Sonic Youth. He is an in-demand composer of film music and writes music history books when he's not performing. He still channels otherworldly sounds from his guitar in a style completely his own. He remains one of the most revered figures in American indie rock, whose unique playing and artistic ideals helped spawn the term noise rock and paved the way for the alternative rock explosion of the early 90s. But this story isn't about Thurston Moore. It's about Kim Gordon, the icon of indie rock cool. This is about a girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Grady Sattler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Patrick Coleman 
For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.